Part three, chapter three of If Winter Comes by A. S. M. Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. The morning passed and the afternoon while he still sat. No more moving than to slink lower in his seat as the battle joined and as he most dreadfully suffered in its most dreadful onsets. Towards five o'clock he put out his hand without moving his position and drew towards him the letter he had begun. The action was that of one of utterly undone. He very slowly tore it across, then across again, and so into tiniest fragments till his fingers could no more fasten upon them. He dropped his arm away and opened his hand, and the white pieces fluttered in a little cloud to the floor. Presently he drew himself up to the table and began to write, writing very slowly because his hand trembled so. In half an hour he blotted a few lines on the last sheet. So simply what I want to do is to let our step, if we take it, be mine, not yours. We shall forget absolutely that you ever wrote. It is as though you had never written. On Tuesday I will write and ask you, shall I come up to you? So if you say, yes, the action will have been entirely mine. It will start from there. It hasn't happened. And during these days in between, just think like anything over what I've said. Honor can't have any degree, Nona, any more than truth can have any degree. Whatever else in the world can quibble to bits, it can't partition those. The truth is just truth, and honor is just honor. And a marriage vow is a pledge of honor, like any other pledge of honor. And if one breaks it, one breaks one's honor. Never mind what the excuse is. There's no conceivable way of arguing that out. That's what I shall ask you to do on Tuesday, and I'm just warning you so you shall have time to think beforehand. He took his pen and steadied his hand and wrote, And your reply, when I ask you, whichever it is, shall bring me light into darkness. Unutterable darkness. M. He could hear the homeward movements about the office. It was time to go. He wheeled his bicycle to the letter-box at the corner of the precincts. As he dropped in his letter, the evening edition of Pike's paper came bawling around the corner. Austria declares war on Servia. He shook his head at the paper the boy held out to him and rode away. What had that kind of thing to do with him? Unutterable darkness. He lived with it during the days that followed while he waited the day appointed to write to Nona again. He had put away that for which, with a longing that was most almost physical in its pain, his spirit craved, and it craved more terribly for his denial of it. Whatever she said when he asked, whichever way she answered him, he would be brought relief from his intolerable stress. If she maintained honor above love, his weakness, he knew, would be welded into strength, as the presence of another brings enormous support to timidity. If she declared for love, his mind surged within him at the imagination of bursting away once and forever the squeamish principles which for years, hedging about his conduct on this side and on that, had profited nothing on whose behalf they had been erected, and his own life had desolated into barrenness. He was little disposed, in these dismays, and in this darkness, to divert attention to the international disturbances which were now rumbling across the newspapers in portentous and enormous headlines. Ireland was pressed away. It was all Europe now. Thrones, chancelleries, councils, armies. He tried to say, what of it? Many in Great Britain tried to say, what of it? crisis and deadlocks again, meaningless and empty words, for months and years past work to death, and rendered hollow as empty vessels. Some would climb down. Someone always climbed down. Nobody climbed down. The cauldron, whose seething and bubbling had entertained some, fidgeted some, 
some nothing at all concerned, suddenly boiled over, and poured into boiling fat upon the flames, and poured in flames upon the hearth of every man's concerns. On Friday the stock exchange closed. On Saturday Germany declared war on Russia. In Sunday's paper Sabre read of the panic run on the banks, people fighting to convert their notes into gold. One London bank had suspended payments. Many had shut out failure only by minutes when midday permitted them to close their doors. People were besieging the provision shops to lay stores of food, and poured in flames upon the hearth of every man's concerns. All his concerns, the crisis with Nona, with his honor and his love, and awaited determination, were disputed their place in his mind by the incredible and enormous events that each new hour discharged upon the world. He watched them as one might watch a burning building, and feeling at every moment that the roof will crash in, yet somehow feeling that it cannot and will not fall in. The thing was gone beyond possibility of recovery. There terribly arose now the urgency for Great Britain to declare for honor. Yet somehow he felt that it could not and would not fail to be averted. It could not happen. It did happen. On Tuesday the mounting amazements burst amain. On Tuesday the roof that could not fall in, fell in. On Tuesday the appointed day for his letter to Nona, he uttered in realization that which, uttered in speculation, had been meaningless as an unknown word spoken in a foreign tongue. War. News of Tuesday's morning caused him at six o'clock in the evening to have been standing two hours in the great throng that filled Market Square, gazing towards the offices of the County Times. Our mobilization, our resolve to stand by France if the German fleet came into the Channel, lastly, most awfully pregnant of all, our obligations to Belgium. And that had been the morning's news, conveyed in the report of Sir Edward Gray's statement in the House of Commons. That afternoon the Prime Minister was to make a statement. A great murmur swelled up from the waiting crowd. A great movement pressed it forwards, towards the County Times offices. On the first-floor balcony men appeared dragging a great board face with paper. On the paper enormous lettering. The board was pulled out endways. The man last through the window took a step forward and swung the letters into view. Premier statement. Ultimatum to Germany. Expires midnight. Sabre said aloud, My God! War! as a retreating wave harshly withdrawing upon the reluctant pebbles there sounded from the crowd an enormous intaking of breath an instant stupendous silence the wave poised for return down a shattering roar tremendous wordless the figure of pike appeared upon the balcony his shirt sleeves his long hair wild about his face in his hands that which had caught the roar as it were by the throat stopped it and broke it out anew on a burst of exultant clamour a union jack he shook it madly with both hands above his head the roar broke into a tremendous chant god save the king sabre pressed his way out of the square he kept saying to himself war war he found himself running to the office no one was in the office then getting out his bicycle with frantic haste then riding home hard he kept saying war he thought otway and before his eyes appeared a vision of Otway with those little beads of perspiration on his nose. War! He couldn't get any further than that. Like the systole and diastole of a slowly beating pulse, the word kept on forming in his mind, and welling away in a tide of confused and amorphous scenes, and forming again, 
and again oozing in presentments of speculations, scenes, surmises, and in profound disturbances of strange emotions. War. And there kept appearing the face of Otway with the little points of perspiration about his nose. Otway had predicted this months ago, and he was right. It had come. War. He approached Penny Green, and realized for the first time the hard pace at which he had been riding, and realized also the emotions which subconsciously had been driving him along. All the way he had been saying, War. What he wanted most terribly was to say it aloud to someone. He wanted to say it to Mabel. He had a sudden great desire to see Mabel, and tell her about it, and talk to her about it. He felt a curiously protective feeling towards her. For the first time in his life, he peddled, instead of free-wheeling, the conclusion of the ride. He ran into the house, and into the morning-room. Mabel was not there. It was almost dinner-time. She would be in her room. He ran upstairs. She was standing before her dressing-table, and turned to him in surprise. Whatever! I say, it's war! She echoed the word. War? Yes, war. We've declared war. Declared war? Yes, declared war. We've sent Germany an ultimatum, and it ends tonight. It's the same thing. It means war. He was breathless, panting. She said, Good gracious, whatever will happen? Have you brought an evening paper? Do you know the papers didn't come this morning till... He could not hear her out. No, I didn't wait. I simply rushed away. He was close to her. He took her hands. I say, Mabel, it's war. His emotions were tumultuous and extraordinary. He wanted to draw her to him and kiss her. They had not kissed for longer than he could have remembered. But now he held her hands hard and desired to kiss her. I say it's war. She gave her sudden burst of laughter. You are excited. I've never seen you so excited. Your collar's undone. He dropped her hands. He said rather stupidly, Well, it's war, you know, and stood there. She turned to her dressing table. Well, I do wish you'd stay for a paper. Now we've got to wait till tomorrow, and goodness only knows. She was fastening something about her throat, and held her breath in the operation. She released it and said, Just fancy, war. I never thought it would be. What will happen first? Will they? She held her breath again. She said, It's too annoying about those papers coming so late. If they haven't arrived when you go off tomorrow, you can tell Jones he needn't send them any more. He's one of those independent sort of tradesmen who think they can do just what they like. Just fancy, actually having a war with Germany. I can't believe it. She turned towards him and gave her her sudden laugh again. I say, aren't you ever going to move? He went out of the room and along the passage. As he reached his own room, he realized it again. War. He quickly went back to Mabel. I say, he stopped. His feelings most frightfully desired to vent. None here. Look here, don't wait dinner for me. You start. I'm going round to Fargus to tell him. At the hall door he turned back and went hurriedly into the kitchen. I say, it's war. Well, there now, cried Hijinks. Yes, war. We've sent an ultimatum to Germany. It ends tonight. Lojinks threw up her hands. Well, if that isn't short a war. Girl alive, the ultimatum ends, not the war. Don't you know what an ultimatum is? Outside he ran down the drive and ran to Fargus's door. It stood open. In the hall, the eldest Miss Fargus appeared to be maintaining the last moment before dinner by doing a silver card salver. Hello, Miss Fargus. I say, is your father about? I say it's war. We've declared war. The eldest Miss Fargus lifted her head to another Miss Fargus, also doing something on the stairs above her, and in a very high voice called, Papa, war! The staircase Miss Fargus took it up immediately. Papa, war! 
and Sabre heard it echoing through the house. Papa! War! Papa! War! Papa! War! How terrible! How dreadful! How frightful! How awful! said the eldest Miss Vargas. You must excuse me shaking hands, but as you see, I'm over pink plate powder. I'm not surprised. We were discussing it only at breakfast, and for my part, though, Julie, Rosie, Poppy, and Bunchy were against me. I—' She broke off to turn and take her portion in the new chorus now filling the house. Sounds of someone descending the stairs at breakneck speed were heard, and the chorus shrilled, "'Papa, take care! Papa, take care! Papa, take care!' Mr. Farkas's grey little figure came terrifically down the last flight and up the hall, a cloud of female Farguses in his wake. He ran to Sabre with hands outstretched and grasped Sabre's hands and wrung him. "'Sabre, Sabre, what is this, really? Truly, war?' We've declared war? Well, I say, thank God. Thank God. I was afraid. I was terribly afraid we'd stand out. But thank God England is England still. And will be, Sabre, and will be. He released Sabre's hands and took out a handkerchief and wiped his eyes. I prayed for this, he said. I prayed for God to be in Downing Street last night. The chorus, unpleasantly shocked at the idea of God being asked to go to Downing Street, said in a low but stern tone, Papa, hush. Papa, hush. Papa, hush! But Sabre had come for this excited wringing of his hands and for this emotion. It was what he had been seeking ever since Pike's notice board had swung the news before his eyes. When presently he left, he carried with him that which, in his mind, would turn to, caused his heart to swell enormously within him. Through the evening, and gone to bed and lying awake long into the night, he was at intervals caught up from the dark, oppressive picture of his mind by surging onset of the emotions that came with Mr. Fargus's emotion. War, his spirit answered, England. Lying awake, he thought of Nona. He had not written the letter to her. The appointed day was past, and he had not written. He would have said, during that unutterable darkness in which he had awaited it, that not the turning of the world upside down would have prevented him writing. But the world had turned upside down. It was not a board Pike's men had swung around in that appalling moment, when he had watched them appear on the balcony. It was the accustomed and imponderable world, awfully unbalanced. Nona would understand. Nona always understood everything. He wondered how she had maintained this terrific day. He was assured that he knew. She would have felt just as he had felt. He thought, with a most passionate longing for her, that he would have given anything to have been able to turn to her when he had exclaimed, My God, war! and to have caught her hands and looked into her beautiful face. Tomorrow he would send the letter. Tomorrow? Why, yes, today, like all todays, in the removed and placid light of all tomorrows, would be shown needlessly hectic. Ten to one, something would have happened in the night to make today look foolish. If nothing happened, if it still was war, it could only be a swiftly over business, a rapid and general recognition of the impossibility of war in modern conditions. Disturbingly, upon these thoughts appeared the face of Otway the little beads of perspiration about his nose. His consciousness stumbled away into the mazy woods of sleep, and turned, and all night sought to return, and stumbled sometimes to its knees among the drowsy snares, and saw strange mirages of the round world horrifically tilted with war upon its face, of Nona held away, and not approachable, of intense light, and of suffocating darkness, and rousing, and struggling away from these, and stumbling yet, rarely succumbing. When he went down into Tidborough in the morning, it was to know at once that this tomorrow gave no lie to its precedent day. It intensified it. The previous day foreshadowed war. 
The new day presented it. The papers, as it happened, did not arrive before he left, and Mabel had more to say of her annoyance with the insufferable Jones than that of what his withheld wares might contain. Her attitude towards the international position was, up to this point of its development, precisely this. She had been following the crisis day by day, with appreciation of its sensational headlines, while these were in the paper before her, but without the furthest interest when the paper was read. She folded up the thrones, the chancelleries, the councils, the armies, and the peoples, and put them away in the brass newspaper rack in the morning-room, and proceeded about her duties and her engagements. But she liked unfolding them, and she was thoroughly annoyed with the insufferable Jones for preventing her from unfolding them. She said she would come down into Tidborough and speak to Jones herself. "'Yes, do,' said Sabre. "'There'll be things to see.' There were things to see. As he rode into the town, people were standing about in little groups, excitedly talking. Everyone seemed to have a newspaper. In a row, as he approached the news agents, were hugely printed contents bills, all with the news, in one form or another. War declared. It was war. Yesterday, no dream. He could not stop to rest his bicycle against the curb. He leaned it over and dropped it on the pavement with a crash, and hurried into the shop and bought and read. War. He looked out into the street through the open doorway, all knots of people standing, talking. War. A mounted orderly passed down the street, at a brisk trot, his dispatch bag swaying and bumping across his back. Everyone turned and stared after him, stepped out into the roadway and stared after him. War. He brought all the morning papers and went on to the office. Outside the bank, a small crowd of people waited about the doors. They were waiting to draw out their money. Lloyd George had announced the closing of the banks for three days, but they didn't believe it was real. Was it real? He passed Hanbury's, the big grocers. It seemed to be crammed, people outside waiting to get in. They were buying up food. A woman struggled her way out with three tins of fruit, a pot of jam, and a bag of flour. She seemed thoroughly well pleased with herself. He heard her say to someone, Well, I've got mine anyway. He actually had a sense of reassurance from her grotesque provisioning. He thought, You see, everyone knows it can't last long. No one in the office was pretending to do any work. As in the street, all were in groups, eagerly talking. The clerk's room resounded with excited discussion. Everybody wanted to talk to somebody. He went into Mr. Fortune's room. Mr. Fortune and Twining and Harold were gathered around a map, cut from a newspaper, all talking even young Harold giving views and being attentively listened to. They looked up and greeted him cordially. Everybody was cordial and communicative to everybody. Come along in, Sabre. He joined them and found their conversation extraordinarily reassuring, like the woman who had sufficiently provisioned with three tins of fruit, a pot of jam, and a bag of flour. They knew a tremendous lot about it, and had evidently been reading military articles for days past. They all showed what was going to be done, illustrating it on a map. The map itself was extraordinarily reassuring, as Twining showed, his fingers covering the whole of the belligerent countries. While the Germans were delivering all their power down here, Belgium and Russians were simply nipped in here, and would be threatening Berlin before those fools knew where they were. He thought, by Jove, yes. And granted, said Mr. Fortune. Mr. Fortune was granting propositions right and left with an amiability out of all keeping with his normal stubbornness. And granted that Germany can put into the field the enormous numbers you mentioned, Twining. What are they to her? None. No use whatever. I was talking last night to Sir James Boulder. 
His son has been foreign correspondent to one of the London papers for years. He's attended the army maneuvers in Germany, France, Austria, everywhere. He knows modern military conditions through and through, as you may say. Well, he says, and it's obvious when you think of it, that Germany can't possibly use her enormous masses. No room for them. Only the merest faction can ever get into action. Where they're coming in is like crowding back into the neck of a bottle. Two-thirds of them uselessly jammed up behind. A mere handful can hold them up, Harold put in. Yes, and those terrific fortresses, sir. Precisely, precisely. Liège, Namur, Antwerp, absolutely impregnable. All the military correspondents say so. Impregnable. Well, then, there you are. It's like sending a thousand men to fight in a street. Look here. He went vigorously to the window. They all went to the window. Sabre with them, profoundly impressed. Mr. Fortune pointed into the street. There. That's what it is. Here comes your German army down this way from the cathedral. Choked. Blocked. Immovable mob. How many do you suppose could hold them up? Thirty? Twenty? A dozen? Hold them up and throw them into hopeless and utter disorder. Pah! Simple, isn't it? I don't suppose the thing will last a month. What do you say, Sabre? Sabre was feeling considerably more at ease. He felt that the first shock of the thing had made him take an exaggerated view. I don't see how it can. He said, now I'm hearing a bit more about it. I was thinking just now what a dramatic thing it would be if it lasted. Of course it can't. But if it lasted till next June, and the decisive battle was fought in June 1915, just a hundred years after Waterloo, that would be dramatic, eh? They all laughed, and Sabre, realizing the preposterousness of such a notion, laughed with them. Twining said, Next June, imagine it. At the very outside, it will be over by Christmas. And they all agreed, Oh, rather. It was all immensely reassuring, and Sabre gathered up his bundle of papers and went into his room, feeling on the whole rather pleasurably excited than otherwise. But as he read, column after column and paper after paper, measures that had been taken by the government, orders to the army and naval reservists, the impending call for men, the scenes in the streets of London, and with these the deeply grave tone of the leading articles, the tremendous statistics, and huge foreshadowing of certain of military correspondents, the breathless news already from the seats of war. As his mind thus received, there returned to its earlier sense of enormous oppression and tremendous conjecture. War. England. The first sentence of his history, now greatly advanced, came tremendously into his mind. This England you live in is yours. And now at war, challenged, threatened. It surged enormously within him. He got up. He must go out into the streets and see what was happening. The day wore on. He felt extraordinarily shy and self-conscious about the performance of a matter that had entered his mind with that surging uplift of his feeling. It was four o'clock in the afternoon before he took himself to it, and then, leaving its place, he unexpectedly encountered Mabel. She was just going into the station. She had come in, as she had proposed, and she told him what she had said to Jones and what Jones had said to her, abominably rude man. Then she asked him, "'Was that Dr. Anderson's gate you came out of just now?' "'Yes. Whatever had you been in to see him about?' He flushed. He never could invent an excuse when he wanted one. I'd been asking him to have a look at me. Whatever for? Oh, nothing particular. You couldn't have been to see him for nothing. Well, practically nothing. 
You remember when I increased my life insurance some time ago, they said my heart was a bit groggy and made a bit of a fuss? Well, I thought I'd just see you again so as to get out of paying that higher premium. Oh, that! What nonsense it was! What did he say? He said I had a murmur or some rot. I say, if you're going back now, don't wait dinner for me tonight. I'll get something here. The Evening Times is bringing out a special edition at nine o'clock. I'd like to wait for it. She assented. Yes, bring home the paper. He went into the office. The afternoon post had brought letters to his desk. He turned them over without interest, then caught up one. From Nona. Marco, this frightful war. I have thanked God on my knees for you that last week you prevented me. If I had done it with this. Tony has rejoined the guards. He was in the reserve of officers. And you see, whatever has been, and is, dear, he is my man to stand by in this. Marco, it would have been too awful if I couldn't. And I thank God for you, again and again and again. Nona. Twining appeared. Hello, old man. Heard the latest? I say, you look as if you're ready to take on the whole world. End of chapter 3 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com